Thank you very much, Pastor Ben. It seems in this litigious society we live in, that there's a warning for just about everything. And while we do like to know the dangers involved, some of these warnings seem a bit unnecessary. For example, this one I came across. Do not, caution, do not swallow this hanger, I guess. Didn't know that I wanted to do that, but I do appreciate the picture of what my neck might look like if I try to do that. Or this next one, danger, do not hold the wrong end of a chainsaw. That's just, that's just good, solid advice right there. I got nothing more to say on that one. But this next one, this is, this is bad news for just about everybody. You might be at risk for throat cancer if you smoke or chew tobacco. Well, I'm good there. Have a throat or mouth. <laughs> Bust. I have both of those. That's unfortunate. Next one. A lot of you know this one already, but do not drive with the sunshade up. Based on some of the driving I see on the 405, I think it's happening out there. Be careful, but don't try this. A lot of you parents out there, right? Got some newborns? Lift your baby like on the left, not on the right. They don't like this movement here, trust me. But you have these babies, they're going to they're gonna get dirty eventually. You're going to have to wash their clothes. Important warning here, remove child from clothes before washing. They are not happy if you try to do that at the same time. Here's a good warning. Found on a carton of eggs. Allergy advice, caution, contains egg. They just want you to know that these eggs have eggs in them, I guess. And this last one, I don't even think I understand this last one. From the good makers of Apple, do not eat iPod Shuffle. Thank you for that warning. Now, a lot of these warnings seem a bit silly. They seem a bit unnecessary. But we're going to encounter some warnings in our verses this week that it's absolutely essential that we heed. And that's a warning of God's coming judgment. Because we're all going to have to stand before God one day. We're going to have to answer to him for how we lived and how we responded to his warnings of coming judgment. And how we do that determines whether we get eternal salvation or eternal damnation. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? God's judgment. Just sitting here tonight as Thrive members hearing of God's coming judgment, should prompt us to do two things. First, we need to check ourselves, make sure we're truly saved. And then we need to work hard to get as many other people as possible right with God. And that's what we'll see as we turn in our passage to Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. Why don't you go ahead and turn there. Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. And as you're turning, let me review Pastor Mike's lessons on these very same verses from this past weekend. He gave us three points this weekend. First, he said, we need to gauge our grief for the lost. You've got to have the same kind of grief that Jesus had. You also need to second, grieve the cost of rebellion. It cost the Jews their city. It cost people eternity. So as a response, number three, we need to keep providing the solution. And that's the focus we'll see in our verses. Verses 41 through 44 of Luke chapter 19. Pick it up in verse 41. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, 
saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. It's quite the change of focus in our verses this week. If you remember the context from last week, the triumphal entry and Jesus riding down the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem and the crowd is cheering for him. But now as he approaches the city, he has a very different reaction. He's weeping over the city. Why is he weeping? He's weeping over their rejection of him. That's why he says in verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on the day the things that made for peace, if only you had known it. But the idea, of course, is that they didn't notice it. Jesus can't even bring himself to finish a sentence. They didn't know peace. What kind of peace are we talking about? We're talking about peace with God. We're talking about getting your life right with God. We're talking about salvation, but they missed it. Jesus came to save them for their sins, and they didn't even see it. Verse 42 ends with, it is hidden from their eyes. Salvation was in their midst, and they were blind to it. And that should be a cautionary tale for us I put on your outline point number one, you need to beware of spiritual blindness. Beware of being blind to God and missing his offer of salvation. The Israelites made a couple of key mistakes here that proved costly to them. First, they misunderstood their privileged position. Because people living in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago had a lot of privileges given to them from God. They had the law from God given through Moses. They had a temple, a beautiful building they could come and worship God. They had the prophets who would speak God's word to them. Problem was, they thought these things guaranteed God's favor to them. They're too caught up in their cherished traditions that it blinded them to the truth, and they missed Christ. And I thought, today in our society, we've got a lot of privileges, yeah, financial privileges living in Orange County like we do. We've got a lot of material blessings from God. We've got political privileges and freedoms to worship God in a way that many people on the planet don't have. We've got a Bible-teaching church. We can come here on Thursday night. We've got the Word of God. We can open up and read from Him, and these are good things, but they're not salvation. Don't think just because you're sitting here in church with a Bible on your lap that you're okay with God. Yes, these are good things. These are blessings from God. But don't mistake the privileges and blessings from God for salvation. They're different, and if you're blind to it, it could cost you eternity. The second mistake the Israelites made that caused their spiritual blindness is they had preconceived notions about their Savior. You know what I mean when I say preconceived notions? That's when you assume you know what's going on. But when you don't know, when your assumptions are false, it could cause trouble. You've all done this, right? Remember when I was dating what would soon be my future wife, I'd gone over to her house for dinner, and she had made these quiches for dinner. As a guy, quiches for dinner, I'm immediately skeptical. But there they were, sitting right there in the oven. They were in these little cupcake trails, tray, these little individual foil wrappers on them. I'm thinking because they're sitting there on the oven with the individual four wrappers, I assume that they must be pre-made. They're frozen and she just popped them in the oven because that's the only way I knew how to make food. So I said, no, no thanks. 
no, I'll just have some leftovers from last night because she made me dinner the night before too because apparently I ate over there a lot. But you see the problem here. She had painstakingly handmade those quiches for me that I just callously disregarded, and she was hurt. I assumed I knew what was going on, and I didn't, and that caused trouble. The Jews were doing the very same thing here. They assumed they knew what was going on, and when their assumptions proved false, they caused them trouble. They knew they knew God would send them a Savior. He had promised them a Savior. They just assumed that that meant a Savior from Rome, the occupying force of the day. They were looking for a different Savior, and they missed him. Jesus was not the Jesus they expected him to be. Their preconceived notions were wrong. And it seems like today everybody's got preconceived notions about Jesus. Everybody's got an idea of what Jesus would be all about today. Oh, Jesus wouldn't want me to be judgmental. Jesus wouldn't want me to tell anybody they're wrong. Jesus would want me to act however I want to act. He'd want me to marry whoever I want to marry. He'd want me to be whatever gender I want to be. As long as I do some good, as long as I go to church, as long as I show up to thrive on Thursday night, then I'm good. But these are notions that are wrong. People think they're okay when they're not. Don't fall for this. You've got to heed God's warning. And to do so, you've got to check yourself. You've got to make sure that you are saved. You don't want to realize, you don't want to stand before God one day and realize you've been spiritually blind. So you need to test yourself, make sure you're right with God. Okay, how do I test myself? How do I do that? Well, first, you've got to test yourself doctrinally. Test yourself doctrinally. You've got to make sure you believe in your mind, believe the right things. If I ask you the question, how do you get eternal life? If your answer back is anything other than repentance from your sins and placing your trust in Christ, then you've got an issue. Don't just assume you know the answer. Get in God's word and validate your beliefs against what God's word says. You've got to test yourself doctrinally. But more than that, you also have to test yourself practically. You've got to look at your life and say, do I obey God's commands? Do I act in a way in keeping with how the Bible describes a Christian? 1 John 2 says, if you love God, you will what? Obey his commands. So you look at your life. For example, do my, does my life show the fruits of the Spirit? If I look at my life, do I see things like love and joy and peace and patience and self-control? These things should be evident in my life. If I fail the test, I need to respond to God's warning. That's what Jesus was doing back in this passage in Luke 19. He's warning the Israelites, destruction is coming. Look back. Look at verse 43. This is what he tells them. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. He's warning them destruction is coming. Why? Because they were spiritually blind. They missed the time of their visitation. They didn't see it. The Israelites didn't respond. They didn't change their ways. They just kept on going, and destruction came exactly as God said it would. Because God is a God that keeps his word. And in AD 70, the Romans came in and destroyed the city. This prophecy fulfilled exactly within a generation. Because the Jews didn't respond. Don't repeat that mistake. you got to heed God's warning. You have to repent. You know what that word means, right? Repent. It means turn. 
You're going one way. God warns you. You turn around and you go the other way. I was out running the other day. Morning, it was dark, rounded the corner, ran right into a skunk. There that thing was looking right at me. Come around the corner, I see him, and he immediately, what does he do? He flips around and his little tail goes up, right? Caution, warning, don't come near. You know what I did? I turned around and I went the other way, right? I heeded the warning. Kudos to God. That's a pretty effective defense mechanism there. But that's the same, same kind of reaction we needed to God's warning of destruction. Well, warning, destruction, turn around, repent, and go the other way. Turn from your sin and turn to God. The Israelites didn't do this. They didn't turn. They were spiritually blind. They didn't see God's warning, and it resulted in their destruction. Don't make that same mistake. Don't think just because you're sitting here tonight, that means that you're right with God. Test yourself. Make sure you're not spiritually blind. And if you fail that test, get your life right with God. Beware of spiritual blindness. But if you've done this, if you responded to God's warning, you've gotten your life right with God, there's a logical next step here. And that's to start being concerned about others who haven't yet heeded God's warning. That's exactly the concern that Jesus had back in our passage. Look back up at verse 41 of Luke 19. When Jesus drew near the city, what did he do? He wept over it. People are just, were just cheering him. Now he's weeping over it. Only two places in the Bible that say that Jesus weeps. Of course, John eleven thirty five, 35, kid's favorite memory verse, Jesus wept. It's right there at Lazarus' tomb. That's, that, that word there is a, is a quiet mourning. You know, the Greek word here, this is loud weeping, loud wailing. You get a sense of the great compassion Jesus had for his people. The passion he had shown and the compassion he had shown, I should say, throughout his ministry on a previous visit to Jerusalem, Matthew 9.36, put it on the screen. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, looking down on Jerusalem, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And now as he draws near to Jerusalem again, he's got the same kind of compassion because people are still rejecting God. People are still like sheep without a shepherd. Christ has compassion for the lost. And it's compassion as Christians we need to share. Or point number two on your outline, you need to emulate God's compassion. When Christ saw the crowd he saw they were sheep without a shepherd. He saw they rejected God, and he had compassion on them. And that's the reaction as Christians we need to have. You know, I thought it was interesting because Pastor Mike briefly mentioned Jonah this weekend. And I think Jonah this is a very interesting comparison because Jonah is sent to Nineveh. And he hates them so much, he doesn't even want to go. But after a quick three-day side trip in the belly of the great fish, arrives in Nineveh, he looks upon it, and he just wants the thing to be destroyed. On the other hand, you've got Jesus here looking down on sinful Jerusalem, and he is weeping for it. Whereas Luke 13 says he wants to gather them together as a hen gathers her young under her wing. And then what does he do? Then he goes into the city for the next week, and he preaches the word to them, gives them one last chance to repent because he cares for them so much. When you look out over your city, over the people you interact with day in, day out, 
Which one are you more like? You have the condescending scorn of Jonah, oh, no love for others. You have the compassion of Jesus. Because the society you look out over is really no different than Jesus' day. We're still like sheep without a shepherd, trying to find fulfillment in all the wrong spots. I got a letter from Focal Point this month. Many of you probably got it. In that letter, it cited a recent Barna survey. It said 91% of U.S. adults believe the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. 84% believe the highest goal of life is to enjoy it as much as possible. 86% believe to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. That's what the world's out there believing. You know what's missing in all that? God. God's missing. I think we've moved beyond God as a society. I think we don't need him anymore. We don't care what he says. And we're gradually becoming more and more antagonistic to God with each passing week, hating God. And it's easy. It's so easy to get angry at that, to get frustrated, to get discouraged, and to even resent a society that hates God so much. That's not what Jesus did. And that's not what we should do. We need to emulate God's compassion. I get it. It's hard. It's hard to do, but I want to give you three things to focus on here that will hopefully make it easy. Three attitudes, three mindsets that will help you mirror God's compassion. First, to emulate God's compassion, you need to be loving. You've got to be loving towards other. Because maybe you've got that antagonistic family member that goes out of their way to put down your belief. And you're just tempted to respond in kind. Or maybe you've got a coworker that flaunts their rejection of God, cursing up a storm, going to bars, whatever it is, and you're just tempted to write them off. Or maybe you hop on this fun thing called social media. Have you heard of it? Right, and you see a non-Christian friend out there posting all the things that you just completely disagree with. And what do you do? You jump in the debate. You start fighting back at them because their point of view is so offensive to you. Think of the most, I don't know, the most offensive politician you can think of. Whoever it is, think of that picture of that person. There they are, all their bravado, their false beliefs. Christ loves that person. And maybe you can love that outspoken, non-Christian friend of yours. Not saying you can't have righteous anger at sin, but don't get angry at them. Because you remember, God loves them. And you should too. So you reach out to them, and you're kind to them, and you love them as God does. You've got to be loving. Second, you've got to be forgiving. Why? Because you remember what you were before God saved you. What were you, Romans 5, 8? While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. You know that God's forgiven you. You also know the world hates God, and because of that, they're going to hate us too. There's no getting around that. Matthew 10, 24, a servant's not above his master. They hated God. They're going to hate us too. But get this. We don't have the privilege of hating them back. No, we need to look past the faults of others. You've got to see them as God does. They're going to wrong you. They wrong you, so what? Forgive them. Someone makes a mistake, don't be judgmental. Because if you have that forgiving attitude, that's going to go a long way towards turning people towards God. Third, you have to have a compassion that's sacrificial. You've got to be willing to give of yourselves for others, for the lost. One a great example of this, think of Paul sacrificing, enduring so much as he compassionately shared the gospel. 
Great passage to write down. You can turn there later. 2 Corinthians 11. This is what Paul said he endured, what he sacrificed. Five times he was whipped, the 40 lashes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods. One time he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at sea, constantly in danger, constantly in persecution, constantly in trials, but he was willing to endure. Why? Because he had the compassion on others that God had. I was recently talking to a Christian friend of mine, and he was telling me the story of how he had helped a friend at work move one weekend. I just blew this guy's mind. What, you'd take a weekend day and you'd sacrifice that for me? As my friend says, this was years ago, and this guy just brings it up all the time. As Christians, this is common. We, we have a Thrive Move ministry. We're helping people move. We're helping people out all the time. We get it. But you make this kind of sacrificial, selfless thing for non-Christians? Man, that's going to amaze them. That's the power of sacrificial compassion. The world is so lost, and it's getting, it's getting farther from God with each, each passing year. It's so easy. It's easy just to write them off. It's easy to get frustrated. It's easy to get angry. But that's not our calling. Our calling is to have compassion and to do it in a loving and in a forgiving and in a sacrificial way. And as you do that, as you, as you build that compassion for others, it's going to lead you to be concerned about their future, concerned about where they're going. And if you're concerned, you're going to warn them. That's the connection Jesus makes back in Matthew 9. We looked at verse 36 on the screen before. Let's put it up there again. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then look at the next two verses. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The logical outflow of Jesus' compassion is to get workers into the harvest. The logical outflow of our compassion is to be one of those workers in the harvest, warning others of God's coming judgment, calling them to repentance and to faith. Or point number three on your outline, you need to compassionately warn others. When you see somebody going the wrong way, you have got to warn them. This is like, I don't know, 90% of parenting. Get home from work, Junior's trying to ride his tricycle off the roof. What kind of parent would you be if you didn't warn them? No, 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 there's danger. You're going to get hurt. What kind of Christian would you be if you didn't warn others? Hold on, there's danger ahead. Don't change the course of your life. You're going to end up in hell. Calling people to repentance and faith. This is our job as Christians. Yet how often do we do it? When was the last gospel conversation you had with somebody? When was it? Oh, we know it's important, but yet we fail to do it. That's why you've got to motivate yourself to do this. You've got to find practical ways to overcome your hesitancies and start speaking up and start warning others. One key way for you to do this is to, to pray. You've got to pray for people. Pray for people who need the gospel. Hopefully you've got some sort of prayer list, some sort of prayer journal. Hopefully you're putting people on that prayer list that need the gospel. Because if you start praying for 
Bob at work, and you start praying for opportunities to speak up to Bob at work, guess what? You're going to be more spiritually aware, and you're going to take advantage of those opportunities when you see them. you got to start praying. And then you have to start getting involved in the lives of others. It's hard to be an effective witness to someone else if you don't have a relationship with them in the first place. Got a new next-door neighbor a few months ago. It's become increasingly aware to me over the last, like, two weeks or so that this guy thinks my name is Paul. Because <laughs> I, I got a note in my mailbox about a week and a half ago, and it said, to my neighbor Paul, and then it had our address on it. I'm looking at this thing going, talking to me? Paul? And then he's in the driveway this weekend, and as he's pulling away, he mumbles something. My son's standing next to me. He's like, did he just call you Paul? <laughs> I think he might have. Too late? What do I need to do here? I thought, here's a guy that needs the gospel. I don't even have enough relationship with him that he knows what my name is. I got work to do. I got to start building that relationship. And you, you've got to identify particular people in your life that need the gospel. You need to take the time, find out what's going on in their lives, their struggles, their joys, their trials, what their name is. You know, deep stuff. I have those deeper conversations that lend themselves to the gospel. You start talking deeply with someone, that's the conversation that goes to the gospel. you got to develop those relationships. And then third, finally, you got to have accountability. You have the desire to share the gospel with somebody? Great. Tell others about it so they can pray for you and so they can hold you accountable. Use your spouse. We're all married here. You've got a spouse. They know you best. Hopefully you tell them the people you want to see saved. Honey, I want to see this person saved. Honey, I want to talk to this person at work this week. They see you nearly every day. They can ask you, hey, how'd it go? Did you talk to Bob at work this week? Oh, I forgot to do that. Thank you for the reminder. They can provide that accountability. Use your spouse. Use your Thrive small group. Thursday night discussions monthly accountability, have people praying for you and holding you accountable to sharing the gospel. If you have compassion for people, you're going to warn them about the path they're on. You're going to share the gospel with them because you've got the words of life to a dying generation. And you're going to stand before God one day. You're going to have to be accountable for what you did with those words that he gave you. So I pray you get motivated this week to start sharing. My wife and I recently had, can you believe it, 15-year anniversary. A smattering of applause. Thank you very much. And to celebrate, we took a trip to, uh, I didn't expect applause. That's nice. Uh, to, to the fall to New England. Spent some time in Boston, drove out to Lexington and Concord. And I tell you, you can't find, uh, you can't spend time in that area for very long without coming across one key name again and again. And that name is Paul Revere, who famously wrote out for Boston, the Old North Church, rode out to Lexington and to Concord to warn the colonialists. Not to warn them that the British were coming, because they were all British. Everybody was British. No, he warned them that the regulars were coming out. The regular British army was coming out to attack. And you know what? It worked. They responded. By the end of the day, thousands of colonialists had come out and attacked the British as they hastily beat this retreat back to Boston. And we hailed this guy. We hailed Paul Revere as a war hero. Why? Because he saw the danger and he warned others. I thought as Christians, we've got to do the same thing. We need to see the danger, the danger of God's coming judgment, and we've got to respond. 
First, by checking ourselves and making sure that we are not spiritually blind. You've got to make sure that we get our own life right with God. And then second, you've got to emulate God's compassion, have the same kind of compassion on others, grieving and caring about the loss that Jesus has. And then third, you've got to do something about it. You've got to compassionately warn others, get out there and warn them of God's judgment and the need to repent and put their trust Christ, because I tell you, that's the kind of person, the person that does that, that will be hailed as a hero in God's kingdom. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for the privilege of hearing a message and a passage like this that maybe is not on the surface the most uplifting, fun passage you can read, but it's a passage we so need to hear, a passage that warns us of your judgment. You are a just God, Lord, and you wouldn't be just if you didn't judge people. But you are also a compassionate God. And I just pray for each person tonight that first they look at their own lives, they check themselves, they make sure that they have repented of their sins, they've put their trust in in you, and they've gotten their life right with you. But then I pray also that we get busy about your work, busy about sharing the gospel. And I pray for this discussion time this evening that, uh, that you give us wisdom on how to hold each other accountable to get out there and start sharing your word. That is our job as Christians. That's the only thing we can do here on earth that we can't do better in heaven is to save people for you reach out there and gather people into your kingdom. I just pray for wisdom on how we can motivate and encourage one another in this very important task. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.